Greetings from Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. Today we are joined again by author-historian Frederick Stonehouse. Mr. Stonehouse has written over 30 books about the Great Lakes and surrounding region, and will be telling us a bit about the history, mystery, host, and ghosts connected to Standard Rock Lighthouse, commonly referred to as one of the loneliest places on Earth. Greetings again, Mr. Stonehouse. Good morning. Standard Rock Lighthouse is located 24 miles out in Superior, making it the furthest lighthouse from shore in the U.S. What did a keeper have to do in order to have been assigned to this light? Was it, was it only for the best and most trusted of lighthouse keepers or the worst of the lot? Well, in the beginning, uh, when the light was first built and opened, it was arguably the best. And it was still difficult for, for some of the folks to be able to acclimate to being that far off and that lonely. Uh, they generally would serve a, a, a four weeks on and uh, a, a couple of weeks off. So they had a, a reasonable period of, uh, of relaxation in between. But it wasn't for everybody. The longest serving keeper there as a civilian prior to Coast Guard was 99 consecutive days. And the shortest was eight days. And the reason it was, all, it, was, it was as long as eight days was because they, the lighthouse service tender had brought the uh, replacement keeper out. I think he was second assistant or first assistant. He had never been there before. And he climbed the, uh, the ladder up to Kaysen, 22 feet from the water level up to the deck level, looked around, realized where he was and said, this is not for me. I'm out of here. <laughs> By the time he tried to get back on the boat, the boat was gone. And it wouldn't come back for another eight days. And at that point, he was removed. But Coast Guard, too, had a lot of trouble sometimes with folks out at the light. Uh, the Coast Guard became Coast Guard in 1940 when the lighthouse served. Excuse me. Coast Guard became the Coast Guard in 1915 when the old life-saving service and the Riveter Marine Service joined to form today's Coast Guard as we know it. In 1940, the lighthouse service was added to that mix by FDR. So they grew a little bit, uh, a little bit bigger. They had an organization now they really no longer wanted. They didn't want the light, lights at all. They saw that as kind of mission creep. But the president says, you got them. So you, all you can do is salute and, and do the best you can. But within the Ninth District, which is the Great Lakes, the light at Standards Rock, uh, and to a lesser degree, the one at Rock of Ages and the one at Spectacle Reef, uh, became known almost as punishment tours that if you really screwed up in Ninth District, they would send you out to Stranded Rock to put your time in. And it, it wasn't, uh, wasn't the best situation. Some of the folks they sent out there were not willing to go uh, and certainly had difficulty living in that type of a, of a very constrained remote environment. Uh, as you indicated, 24 miles from the nearest shore, you couldn't even see the shore on most days. And to be out there in a hammering storm, as we've talked about before, can be a, a very religious experience. But there was a, a story within the district, and I, I can't verify it's true, but it is a good story. But one of these folks that didn't really want to be there ended up there. And uh, after a few days, he contacted the service station, which was Marquette, about 42 miles away. And in effect, said, you guys got to come and get me. You, you got to come and get me. And the the chief at the other end of the line at the Marquette end said, well, you know, we're not due out for about another four or five days. So, uh, you know, we can't come. And fell at the light said, no, no, if you're not listening. If, if you don't come and get me, I'm going to start to swim. You've got to come and get me. <laughs> so they 
they, they bent the rules a little bit, went out and got him. And the story goes that when they took him in the Marquette General Hospital psych ward, they had him in a straitjacket. Oh, uh, man. Ability to react, to, re to thrive in the loneliness of the light. Now, there were two or three other guys with him, but that is a very closed society, obviously. And uh, your, your stimulation is not what we have today with all the cell phones and electronic games and radios and all that. That was, if you were looking for a good time, it was probably playing a, a game of pinochle. Yeah, I kind of refer to that as, you know, you know, think about cabin fever. It's a lighthouse, but it's really just located, it's just a crib. It's just, it's just located, it's really just the lighthouse itself with the tower. There's not much peripheral uh, territory there to kind of be alone or kind of, you know, get your thoughts together and get away from the, your coworkers. Nope. Uh, and that was part of the challenge for folks that were living there and folks that made a career out of the lighthouse service. Uh, it's one thing to live in an environment where the light is part of a city, for example, Marquette Harbor Light, you're right in the city. Uh, the same thing certainly with most of the lights that you find on the Great Lakes. But for the ones that are tower remote or considered to be stag lights where you don't have the family members with you, it can be pretty tough on these guys. Yeah, like out at Seishua, for instance, that was kind of like the, the, the lighthouse there was kind of like a, like a public gathering spot. It was kind of like the central spot where everybody would come and uh, socialize and stuff like that and see people coming on ships. And uh, But when you're out in the middle of Lake, Lake Superior, that's that's not really, um, you know, there's, there's no dances going on. There's no social interaction whatsoever. No. Uh, for a while in the 1890s, uh, many of the lighthouses, some of, some of the lighthouses, let me restate that, uh, really were, as you indicated, gathering places. Uh, they were usually in well-manicured uh, plots of land, uh, right at the tip of whatever little peninsula they had. And on Saturday, that's when folks might come out and picnic on the lighthouse grounds. Mm -hmm. It got so bad that the superintendent of lighthouses put a memo out to everybody that, in effect, said this is government property. These people can't come on it. Uh, some of the keepers tried to enforce it, and it, it didn't work out well. Uh, many of them just said, well, this is one of those things that I've seen that I just didn't manage to get to yet, uh, knowing that his population base and his popularity within the community uh, was really dictated by having people on the grounds enjoying themselves. Right. And when you think about it, it's probably not a bad idea. It's good publicity. Right, right. So the, uh, typically they're getting visitors. Uh, that, that was one of my questions for you is like, you know, supplies and how often did they, these shifts last? Um, roughly every eight days they would they would um, uh, renew the, the keeper or replace him and, and maybe re-up with supplies, food, and, and basics, tobacco. Uh, yeah, it was about an eight-day cycle, weather permitting. Yeah, weather uh, permitting, exactly, on Superior. Uh, there were some cases where the supply boat made it out to the light. They couldn't land because of the waves. So they moored off. They literally threw the anchor line up to the lighthouse. They made it fast, and the boat just rolled the waves for the next day and a half, waiting for the lake to calm down enough for the supplies to be transferred. And this this obviously was not the most uh, family-friendly of the Great Lakes lighthouses. So this one was called uh, dubbed a, a stag lighthouse. So th there were only men serving there. Is that correct? That is correct. Only the men. And um, how many uh, were on duty at any given time? Normally would have been three. Three? Again, though, as the service budget increased or decreased, that number could shift. But certainly three was a normal complement for the lighthouse. Yeah, tight quarters out there. I've seen pictures. So, If you want to look at the Coast Guard era, it gets a little more interesting from the standpoint that the old light keepers on the civil side, prior to 1940, uh, really 
took care of their lights. Uh, that, was, that was his job. That was the, the reason for his existence. Uh, they took loving care of them. They made certain that nothing damaged them. Uh, when the Coast Guard took over, this was seen just as a collateral duty. Uh, so you saw a lot of damage occurring to the Fresnel lenses, uh, particularly from keys, because every Coast Guardsman seemed to have a big bunch of keys snapped to his belt. And as he was working on the lens, either polishing it, changing it, or doing whatever had to be done, very often those keys would hit the edge of the prism, chipping it. So if you look today at the big Fresnels, Carefully, you'll see a lot of chips within the, the edges, and all of that caused by Coast Guard era post-1940 by careless operation. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and you mentioned like they had other duties. Even in some of the more remote spots, obviously not a, probably not on standard rock, but these people would, they got up every morning, they shaved, they dressed, they were prepared for an unexpected visit, possibly by a superior at certain times. And I think it is, again, Seychois, or, or, or is it maybe Iroquois? There's like 45 layers of paint you know, in the, in the off time, they're, 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 they're whitewashing these buildings and keeping everything pristine. They were responsible for all maintenance of the lighthouse, normally except painting the tower. That would be a contract uh, deal in most lighthouses. So they were busy. And as you indicated, that meant often a lot of layers of paint. <laughs> uh, kind, of, kind of a quasi-military thing. If it doesn't move, paint it. Yeah, under one of them, they they uh, I, again, I think that it is Seychois. They 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 removed all the the paint and they found this beautiful copper moldings that they had used across all the uh, the door frames in the house, which was kind of unexpected. Difference between Coast Guard error and life saving or lighthouse error. Lighthouse error, they would have really made uh, made careful use of that additional trim. They would have loved it. They would have maintained it. Coast Guard error just painted it all over. Again, this quasi-military approach as opposed to civilian approach. Yeah, I like that quasi-military reference. How long was the the season uh, at, at Standard Rock? Uh, the season would start with the season of navigation. So theoretically, if the Sioux locks opened up on the 28th of March, let's say, the lights would be shining up by the 28th. The lights would all be lit and up, reported so. Uh, if it and would continue through the close of navigation, uh, normally about the 15th of January. That said, weather could dictate when you got to some of these lights. And there's one instance, and I, I don't have the date in front of my reading right now, but that they literally could not get the light, could not reach the light until the middle of July. That's how much ice was around it. Yeah, that's exactly what my next question was, was going to be, because uh, I've, I've read reports that they would get out there and the, the, they could have 10 feet of ice encasing these, these, th th that lighthouse specifically. Oh, they easily could, because again, of the remote location of it, the terrific storms, the cold weather that's endemic to Lake Superior. And in some instances, uh, the only way they were able to get the, to the door to get in the light was using steam hoses from the uh, lighthouse tender. They'd bring the lighthouse tender alongside, they'd fire up the steam engine, take the relief valves off it, and then using like big washing wands, the steam, they would be able to cut their way through the ice well, relatively easily to be able to get to the, the building to get in. But even then, it could take them three, four days to do so. Uh, they had a reverse of that, I think, in 1913, where there was so much ice built up around the building that they couldn't get the keepers out of the building in November to pull them for the year. Uh, so they ended up spending a couple more days in the building, eating whatever food they had left, 
Well, well, the folks in the lighthouse town that were trying to cut their way in. I think they had a crew of 12 that were doing the cutting job. Yeah, yeah. again, talk about if not for somebody who's, who's prone to cla claustrophobia. Would have been an interesting experience. It, it reminds me of last week, I host motor coach buses, um, bring a lot of people in from, from all around the country to show them our lovely area up here. They pulled up on, out in front of the pair. They said they're going to be 20 minutes late. Um, I, I, I come around the bus, and here's this quite heavy set um, lady with, with both legs kicking the door to the bus, trying to, the, the door got jammed for 35 minutes. Um, so I'll give a special shout out to the crew at the Perry Hotel. They, they um, were able to um, open the door and, and, and allow these people to exit the bus. But then I had to get on. I'm like, well, what's going to keep me from getting locked on? Oh, we fixed the problem. I got locked on. <laughs> That's one of more of the interesting tours I've done this year, or probably ever. That's the first time that have ever happened. Again, you mentioned who served. What was the longest run one person that had ever done out there? A fellow by the name of Louis Wilkes. Louis Wilkes, uh, Wilk rather, and uh, he did 99 consecutive days. Wow. Played a lot of pinochle, played a lot of solitaire, I'm sure. <laughs> Murder, hauntings, and drama. I, I know of one account, my friend Diana Stampler. I think you, we have a mutual friend. You know Diana, right? Yep. An explosion. 9.30 p.m. on Sunday, June 18, 1961. What, what can you tell us about that evening? That, that was a little bit confusing. They had four. Normal, normal compliment. Four Coast Guard. One of them was on watch. A fellow by the name of Maxwell. They had the gasoline generators in a separate little uh, shack they had built on the on the deck, big foghorn generators. And one of the engines was disassembled. Now, because these ran on gasoline, that meant you had a closed space, the room, and you had the fumes of the gasoline in the room. And then you added the mixture of the watch stander, who the belief is, at least in one of the stories, that he was smoking his pipe he walked into the room, and again, from this version of what happened, it was the pipe that set off the fumes that set off the explosion. Uh, that killed him outright. Uh, to my knowledge, the remains were never discovered. But the blast was powerful enough that it shook two of the Coast Guardsmen out of their bunks. They were up in the bunk room, I think, on the sixth level. Literally knocked them out. And the, uh, the third guy was escaped without injury. But... The, the fumes now from this huge gasoline fire, 1,000-gallon tank of gasoline now that's is cooking off, is melting the limestone of the tower. So if you go out there today, you can see the limestone that the, the tower is built out of. That literally is melted and sagging in some places where the flames hit it. In the meantime, the force of the fire is, for, is going up the lighthouse itself, just like it's a huge chimney. It's working like a chimney, yeah. And up at the the, uh, the lantern room, the scuttle door, I believe, was open. So now you set up the vent to draw that fume right on up. So it literally burned out the internal lighthouse in, in, in great measure. The, the fellas now that were alive, the three of them, had a couple of cans of beans. That was all they could salvage. And they had a tarp. So they went out to the deck and parked themselves on the deck waiting for rescue, thinking that, well... We missed our radio check, obviously. They make a big radio check every several hours with Station Marquette, as well as one at the Keweenaw. Those checks were missed. The men should, should surely recognize that, that something's wrong here. We haven't made our checks. 
Well, they didn't for at least two days. So for two days, the radio checks that should have been made were ignored by the shore stations. These guys are, are freezing to death out there on the light. Uh, it's always cold on, on standards. It doesn't make any difference what time of year it is. Until finally, Cutter Woodwash arrives, uh, the buoy tender, to do normal service at the light without any idea that anything had happened. But they still see the smoke rising up out of the lighthouse. So they are able then to make the rescue of the, the three survivors. And uh, I would come back later and rig the, the light, the lens for winter light, and was put it on an automatic device so they didn't need the crew there at all. But that uh, that term, that explosion was really uh, an accident almost waiting to happen. Yeah, it sounds like a terrible it. recipe. I mean, gasoline, fumes, I mean, this was just an was accident just waiting to happen. It's, it's just, uh, th this was a period, too, when the Coast Guard was doing so much with so little for so long, they were qualified to do anything with nothing. Uh, so they were really running on a tight budget, and I can understand why they weren't spending money they didn't have. Congress didn't provide it, therefore we don't do it. But it, uh, it, was a, it did mean, though, that the lens, in turn, the big Fresnel, the big second order, was removed uh, by the Coast Guard, taken to the Sioux box stop, and labeled Sioux St. Marie lens, and then put back into Coast Guard storage. So when the Maritime Museum in Marquette started back about 30 years ago, we began to look for the lens, what happened to it. And we could never find it within Coast Guard records because it was labeled Sault Ste. Marie lens. Until I had a call one day from the Coast Guard curator who said, Fred, are you still looking for the lens for Stanis Rock? Uh, you bet we are. Well, I found it. It's in the basement of Coast Guard Academy uh, up in uh, Groton, Connecticut. So I flew out and checked it because lenses are not serial numbered. They're simply identified by what they are, second order from L lens manufactured this date. So I was able to track it by damage to the lens that had occurred during the fire to make sure it was the correct one. It was, there weren't many second order bullseye Fresnels that were used anyway. So that then was loaned off to the Maritime Museum. We still have it, but it, uh, it took a long journey to get there because somebody had mislabeled the box. But if they hadn't mislabeled the box, Lord knows where the lens would have ended up, maybe in Toledo, Ohio, or someplace really out of the out of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this was a big event. This made the Chicago Tribune on June twenty second. I mean this was this was um this was big news back then. Well it was, and it was a great story, uh very unusual story. And of course the investigation report, I've never been able to find a copy of it. Uh, Coast Guard has never been able to find a copy of it. So what happened uh, from their perspective as, as, as a result of a detailed investigation has never been shown. Interesting, interesting. If any of your uh, listeners ever have uh, the ability to find that or have a copy, I'd certainly like to see one. Yeah, myself as well. After that, that point, it was restored to a certain extent, and it was automated after that, or did another crew come on well, later on? Yeah, they, they pulled the lens, of the big Fresnel, and they put a, a jelly jar in, a Lexan lens, and then they rigged that for automatic uh, operation. There really was no reason that hadn't been done years before. There was no reason to have active keepers out there, uh, because the automation was certainly quite capable. And if you're looking for a place to do automation, Certainly, Standards Rock would have been the place to, to do it. Yeah, especially after this this particular uh, 
terrifying incident. I'd like to be the next group that came on. I don't think I'd volunteer for that one. Any, any other great stories or uh, ghost stories? Any, anything you've heard about what's going on out there these days? I know we're going to be talking with Mr. Lindquist later on about the new incarnation of the light. And any, any good t other tales about the, uh, the light? Yeah, I think the, uh, the story that I've always heard from several different Coast Guardsmen really relates to this ex the terrible explosion they had, and that's that the ghost of Maxwell is still supposedly at the light. And they would complain, the Coast Guardsmen would complain that if they were left there overnight to do repair or maintenance or services of the existing facility, they would hear garbage cans fall over at night, they would hear steps on the, on the stairs going up the levels, uh, they would hear things they shouldn't be hearing, and they would blame that on the ghost of Maxwell. Never any evil intent, there's nothing, there weren't chains rattling, there wasn't anything like that. But it was certainly the activity of, I guess we'll call it a poltergeist for anything that, uh, more definitive that was active in the light. Which kind of segues you to the idea of ghosts and lighthouses, because all I'm convinced from what I've found that there isn't a lighthouse in this country, probably in this world, that is not haunted. Uh, you just have to ask the right person at the right time who's had the right experiences. Uh, and all of those hauntings normally seem to, to settle down to the idea of steps on the tower stairs, of hearing those. And when you think of, of a ghost as maybe perhaps manifestation of some kind of an energy source, uh, then what did the lightkeeper do repetitively all the time, up the stairs, down the stairs, up the stairs, down the stairs? So that may have imprinted. Again, yeah. if you believe in those things, that's an easy way, I think, to, to look at the, the poltergeist, the haunted history of lighthouses, not only in the U.S., but also around the world. And I, 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 that's exactly my opinion also. I don't know if there's a lighthouse I've ever heard about that doesn't have some, some ghostly tales attached to it. And, and again, those guys were responsible for, you know, thousands of men's life, lives every season. Those, those lights had to keep running, especially back in the days when they had to haul, haul oil up and down those steps and, and you know, keep track. Of course, to me, it seems like there would be a re, um, residual um, um, you know, energy surrounding those buildings. Have you, you yourself ever been out to the rock? Well, the first time I was out to the rock, I never saw it. Uh, we, had, <laughs> we had gone out fishing and we had all the numbers. Uh, this was back when you were using uh, the TDs as opposed to the GPS we're using now. But it led us right to the rock because we got to the reef and we caught great fish, but it was so foggy, so incredibly foggy that you never saw the lighthouse. <laughs> you, you could hear the bleep a little bit of a horn, but you, you never got there. And of course, afterwards got out there a number of times for various reasons. But uh, it is a very special place. Yeah, I'm chomping at the bit to get out there myself. Um, I, I guess it's kind of famous for uh, for trout fishermen. Um, red red tail, is that correct? Well, well, it's it's all lake trout out there. All lake trout. The fishing is terrific, absolutely terrific. Uh, the well, Michigan state record is out at standards. I think it was sixty one and a half pounds. How, how much? Sixty one and a half. Yeah, that's a good sized fish. Well, that's a big old lunker that somebody brought up. Man. But you can catch lake trout out there until you're tired of catching lake trout. I mean, it's just a tremendous breeding population that's right on the reef. Is the reef what makes it so so so? Um... It's my understanding that it is. It's just kind of like this little separate biosphere. I got to figure out a way to make it out there. During uh, during prohibition, the story goes that some of the fishermen from Marquette 
would bring a few bottles with them, go out to the light, and then would trade the, the booze for the fish that the light keepers had been catching. Because they had a small net out there and they would be able to net the same way the commercial guys did. So if you, if you planned your trips on arrivals tightly enough, the fish would be fresh, they could go into the, the fish tug, and then the exchange would be made with a few bottles of hooch. Yeah, hey, this is like a bad, bad deal. Not a bad deal, but you know, if there's a will, there's a way, and that's one of the <laughs> one of the ways they did it. One thing that's happened uh, recently, and uh, you you wrote the, in my opinion, the definitive book on on the uh, the Fitzgerald, uh, the famous uh, shipwreck in Lake Superior. It's probably one of the two most famous shipwrecks, I would say, equally as is is well, probably equally as famous as or infamous as the Titanic. And of course, uh, last week's uh, unfortunate situation with the lost sub, um, it just kind of just kind of brought back some some memories, I think, and some emotions here locally uh, about the loss of the Fitzgerald again. Would you well, have uh, been on that sub going down two and a half miles? Well, I'm certainly not qualified to to judge any of the construction of the of the submersible or how they were doing it. Uh, you know, we we do know certainly that the technology marches on and. The way we used to do things is not the way we're doing them now. We're always getting smaller, tighter, more efficient. So whether that was a good move or a bad move, I, I certainly can't judge. Uh, but I do know that on the lakes, the Titanic is often viewed as Fitzgerald and Fitzgerald as Titanic. Uh, Fitzgerald is often looked at as being the Great Lakes version of the Titanic. And that's the way it's almost embedded in people's minds. I yeah, We all know all of us of a certain age, know where we were and what we were doing when we heard that John Kennedy was shot. Yeah. It's kind of burned on right into the, the brain crystal. But on the lakes, again, people of a certain age also remember where they were when they heard about Fitzgerald. It had that same type of cultural impact. I'm convinced too, that if you go into any grade school in the Great Lakes area and ask the kids, for the names of two shipwrecks, they will invariably give you Titanic, and they'll know a little bit about it. And they will also give you Fitzgerald, and they'll know a little bit about it. But the idea that you've got these two vessels, you know, one of, of international significance, the other of Great Lakes significance, that have almost melded on the, in, the, in the Great Lakes cultural world, I find fascinating. That the same impact, the same memories of Fitzgerald are just really as strong on the lakes as, as Titanic is. Yeah. If anybody out there listening right now knows Dave Kaplan, he's a local historian here. He does uh, talks about the Titanic all around the world. Um, and one of his um, topics one year, he always changes uh, the, the theme. It's always about the Titanic, obviously. But um, he talks about the Michigan connections. And there's quite a few Michigan connections. You know, the Astor family, um, that's, that's from Mackinac Island. All that money that came from the fur trading, but there's, there was a lot of connections between um, the Titanic and, and Michigan itself. Well, that's the wonderful thing about history is that it's all connected dots. If you can find the dots, they all will connect. They all will come together. Well, Mr. Stonehouse, I really, again, I can't thank you enough uh, for taking the time to join us. I know you have a, a busy afternoon ahead of you. I hope maybe we can have you on maybe once a year. That'd be great. I'd like to do a, just just one episode on on the, uh, the the Fitzgerald. I know again your book is considered one of the one of the best ones out there, if not the definitive book about the. Uh, it is the best. Let's. It's the best. Let's just say it. The best. I mean, if you can't hawk your own, what what can we hawk, right? That's right. That's right.
Again, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and this has been Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. Make sure and check out some of Mr. Stonehouse's books. There really is something for everyone in the 30-plus books he's written about one of the best places there is to call home, Northern Michigan. Thanks again, Frederick. Well, thank you, and at any time, give me a, sh give me a shout, and if we can work it in, we can work it in. <laughs> <laughs>